Well, welcome this morning again as we open the scriptures together. And um, as we're doing a series in the Ten Commandments, we are up to commandment number seven. But for the sake of context, what I want to do this morning is is read the whole of the Ten Commandments. Okay, I've just got to get my gizmo working here first. Okay, there we are. So let's turn to Exodus chapter 20, and we'll commence at verse 1, and we'll read through to the end of uh, verse 17. Then God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the water under the earth. You shall not worship them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children on the third and fourth generations of those who hate me but showing loving kindness to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments. Verse 7. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not leave him unpunished who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath of the Lord your God. And in it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male or female servant or your cattle or your sojourner who stays with you. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Verse 12. Honour your father and your mother that your days may be prolonged in the land which the Lord your God gives you. You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not be a false witness against your neighbour. You shall not covet your neighbour's house, you shall not covet your neighbour's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbour. May God add a blessing to his word this morning as we look at the seventh commandment and I've titled this message pursue or pursuing sexual purity you shall not commit adultery as we have seen thus far the second table of the law is to do with our relationship with one another whereas the first table of the law that's the first four commandments is to do with our relationship with God. In other words, the construct of the Ten Commandments teach us something. It teaches us that if our relationship with God is not right, then relating to others will have no fixed moral boundaries in the way that we treat them. In other words, If our relationship with God is not right, our standards of morality will shift and change to the whims of our own thinking or culture's thinking. And yet so many religious people, dare I say, get this back to front. What they do is they work hard 
so hard, many of them, at being good moral people according to the second table of the law to hopefully win a right and better relationship with God. That's what they do. In other words, they believe that their level of morality that they attain in life will earn them God's favour and will give them a pass into the pearly gates. But folks, that's not how it works according to Scripture. A right relationship with God is having complete faith in what he has done in the person of Jesus Christ on the cross for our sins. Very simple, but very plain, but fundamental. God's grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone, plus nothing else, is what makes a sinner right before God. You got that? You need to really get that. You need to understand that. That's a fundamental if you haven't got that locked in and understand and, and, a, and a part of your worldview and, and the centre of your whole worldview, well, you need to start there. Of course, as we understand that, this begs the question, so what are the Ten Commandments for? These Ten Commandments are for believers, God's children. They tell us how to live before God in ways that will honour and glorify Him. As we learned at the outset, these commands were given by God to who? His redeemed people, the children of Israel, whom He redeemed out of Egypt. And so God's grace, He didn't have to redeem them, but in grace He redeemed them. And so grace comes before law, and that's how it still goes. That's how it still goes. And in their relationship to others, God has given us fundamental commands. That's what these commands are. They're fundamental commands on some non-negotiable behaviors in order that we may glorify him. And as we come to the seventh command, we need to see that its, that its subject matter is not by some random act of providence or chance or whatever you like to tag it, it's not by some random act that it's placed immediately after the sixth command which forbids murder, which we looked at last week. Because as the act of murder violently eradicates the image of God from another human being and leaves a trail of misery, as that does that, adultery destroys and devastates the family unit that God has designed to represent him and be a mainstay for society's healthy productivity. In other words, adultery attacks the glue that holds families together. Things like trust and loyalty and love and sexual intimacy, the very things that were designed by God to be the sole right and pleasure of a husband and wife is breached and often never salvaged when adultery is committed. Also, as the sixth command forbids personal hatred rising up, and destroying God's image in another human being, as we looked at last week, 
The seventh commandment forbids lust rising up and destroying the bond of matrimony that God invented to image the eternal unity of the Godhead. I wonder if we think about that. The seventh command, you shall not commit adultery. It's five simple words. It's easy to remember, which you can all say off by heart without even looking at the words. Yet this sin, that's so easy to remember, this sin is so prevalent in our societies and our culture. And sad to say, even here in this congregation this morning, most of us will know someone who has been involved in one way or another in an adulterous relationship. I'm warning you here. I'm going to be up front on this today, okay? Because this is what this text's about. And so God's up front, so I have to be up front. In fact, this sin is so prevalent in our day that this rampant sin is dumbed down big time. Our culture dumbs it down and makes it look like it's not even a sin at all. As a matter of fact, it is so flaunted, especially on TV and and, and movies, that they treat the sin as something that is normal in our modern day society. You all know this. I'm just trying to affirm it in your minds. This is the world we live in, right? It's a... We live in a world where sexual purity within the marriage bond has been replaced with recreational sex. A world where fidelity and commitment to marriage has been replaced by casual relationship that has a flexible use-by date. That's what it's like. And so although this command from God is counterculture, We as God's redeemed people must observe and obey its prohibition as well as understand its implied prescription because it certainly has one and we'll be looking at that later on. And so this morning what I want to do is to look at this commandment under three areas. The first area is this commandment is up front and plain against cheating on your spouse. Secondly, the implied teaching for marriage in this commandment. We want to have a look look at that. And thirdly, I want to have a look at some practical implications of this commandment for our daily living. So firstly, this commandment prohibits adultery. Right at the outset, I want to make clear that although adultery is a word used to describe unfaithfulness of a husband or a wife, As we look at the whole of Scripture, this word is far more comprehensive than that. Okay? And just to illustrate what I mean by that, you remember when Jesus gave that Sermon on the Mount, he said this to the Pharisees and the scribes who were listening and to the people who were listening on the Sermon on the Mount. He says, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit, here's the word, adultery. But I say unto you, and here's the other important word, everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So what that verse suggests and tells us that this word adultery is far more comprehensive than just a husband or a wife being unfaithful. 
This word adultery encompasses the entire realm of sexual sin, no matter what marital status we may be in. In other words, what adultery includes and means here is any sexual experience outside the confines of a marital relationship. But in regards to marriage, adultery is a sin and that it breaks the promise of fidelity made before God and people and from a husband to a wife and a wife to a husband. This sin of adultery is where a choice is made to pursue selfish and lustful desires at the expense of discarding promises made to one another. In other words, the price tag of being loyal and faithful to one's spouse or one's spouse-to-be, you single people, is too high. And so lust of the flesh becomes the dictator that drives the sinful parties to commit sexual sin of adultery. But can we ask, why is this, or we can ask, why is this particular sin, this area of sin, singled out by God? I want to have a look at that for a little while. The first reason, not necessarily in priority, but it's the first one I've chosen, is that adultery breaches God's design for marriage. You got that? In the first chapters of Genesis, God makes it very plain that the very foundation and heart of a God-designed family is when a man and woman are joined in marriage and they become, you know what, one flesh. Genesis 2, 24. You know that very well. Now, the one flesh aspect is a whole lot more than sexual intimacy. A whole lot more than that. Sexual intimacy in marriage helps a couple become one, for sure. It's like a a stamp of affirmation of one another's trust and love and loyalty and honor and respect and faithfulness toward our spouse. That's what it is. Sexual intimacy within marriage is like, we go a bit further here, is like God's designer signature through us toward our spouse of our loyalty and our love and our faithfulness forever. And that makes it a whole lot more serious when we're unfaithful, isn't it? This means that God designed marriage between a man and a woman to be a permanent relationship where a home is developed. Where a home is developed. And flowing out of this one fleshness, this oneness, affirmed through sexual intimacy... You know what God God did? God gave the husband and wife the pleasure and the joy of making children. The latest one born in this church is Rachel Faith. Congratulations, guys. So just as God, and and get a load of this, just understand this, track with me here. So just as God created man and woman in his own image in the garden. We've had a look at that recently, right? So just as he created man and woman in his own image in the garden, 
A man and a woman in marriage represent God who now also have the right and the joy of making another human being in their image through sexual intimacy, through procreation. Now, you want to know what being made in the image of God is? That's a little part of it. We don't create like God did out of dust, but we make. We make. What a privilege and what a joy. You see, it's in that environment the home is born. The very nest where mum and dad have become one develops to be a place of nurture for their children. Now, I'm talking generally here. We know that some parents cannot have children and our heart goes out to them. And there are things like adoption and that's why we encourage all that. But we're talking generally here. This is God's design for marriage that truly represents him. This should remind us that the home where mum and dad are faithful to one another and who teach their kids godly values, it's not a product of cultural thinking like we have bandied about today. You may have heard, you know, there's the move to this transgender and, and homosexuality and where two men live together and two women as, a, as, as according to Romans 1, as a sin against God, an abomination. Uh, by our, our modern mind, they're being pushed upon it that this is just part of the evolution of humankind. And as man and wife was accepted in a bygone era, there's going to be a future, which is ridiculous because how can you have two men to have a trial. But that's the kind of stuff that we're, we're getting pushed upon us and it's totally wrong. And so God designed marriage and he designed the home. It's not a product of cultural thinking. This is how God designed families to be. Just, so as there is this bond of oneness, by the way, that bond of oneness, this one flesh also has the idea of the Hebrew word shalom. You know what that means? Peace. And so we, as we have this bond of shalom, that we see it perfectly in the Godhead. There's never any disunity within the Godhead, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, right? There's a shalom there like nothing else. As we have this bond of oneness in the Godhead, God also designed your marriages to reflect that. You know, it's the greatest union on earth. The greatest union on earth between a man and a woman. That we are called to reflect the glorious unity of the Godhead. This is why marriage is far more a theological statement than a mere temporary human relationship. Such is the sacredness of this earthly union between a man and woman that we are prohibited from breaching this union. And adultery is a sin that violates this divinely designed relationship. Adultery also produces heartache. I know people, as you may also, who have suffered and been victims of an adulterous relationship. It breaks one's heart. The depth of heartache and often irreplaceable damage to the innocent spouse 
the family and even the church family is oppressively severe. Often circumstances of the offender are put up as a way of justifying sin, this particular sin. But folks, no matter what the difficulties, no matter what the circumstance, adultery is never the right option. You got that? Adultery does incredible damage to one's spouse. When this sexual sin takes place, you know what it does? It shouts in the face of the innocent, you were not good enough for me. That's what it does. It wrecks trust, it wrecks respect, it wrecks honor, it, it, it fills the victim with feelings of failure, of being used, of being violated and abandoned. Adultery attacks the very heart of love that made the two become one flesh in the sight of God. It attacks it. But it doesn't stop there. As adultery also attacks one's children, right? If there are children in the family. You know, there's no one like your kids for picking up any disharmony and tension in the home when mum and dad fall out with one another. Don't think your kids are dumb. They pick it up for even the slightest reason. And when adultery takes place, they feel the weight of disharmony rather than the peaceful shalom as it should be. They feel threatened as a loss of security and peace kicks in to the home big time. They lose all respect and honor they had for the offending spouse. That goes out the door. They tend to despise any previous nurturing and guidance on morality from that one who has disregarded those promises he made to his spouse. And the children suffer immeasurably, especially if this sin leads to divorce, which often it does. Folks, sexual sin of any kind messes up lives beyond Adultery is more than the physical act. I think we'll all agree that any form of sexual sin always begins with wrong thinking, right? Mark's Gospel, chapter 7, verses 21 to 23 says this, and it's very clear when it says, For from within, out of the heart of men, proceed evil thoughts, adulteries, fornications, murders, thefts, covetousness, wickedness, deceit, lasciviousness, an evil eye, blasphemy, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within and defile the man. In other words, no one commits sexual sin without thinking and fantasizing over a selfish sexual possibility for them. Behind any sexual sin, there is always a mind that is bent away from God and a mind that freely and volitionally is given over to the lust of the flesh. In other words, a person doesn't wake up in the morning and say, oh, I'm going to go and commit adultery today and then go and commit the act. No, 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 it doesn't work like that. There is a whole lot of thinking. There is a whole lot of fantasizing. There is a whole lot of mind work behind the scenes before the act is committed. Like murder, which is incited, by the way, 
with many things, but just to name a couple of them, murder is incited with mind-bending rage and hatred and revenge, and you can add the others to it. Just like murder, adultery is incited by mind-bending, selfish, lustful thoughts. Remember what James says in chapter 1, verses 14 and 15, and he says this, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desires. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. There you are. So this is not my idea. This comes from the very word of God. This mind takeover, by the way, can be triggered so easily. So don't be fooled here. Just because you're a Christian and you read your Bible every day, don't think that you're exempt from any of this kind of stuff. You are not. Our mind can be triggered so easily. It begin with even one provocative image that we see. Or maybe even a flirtatious smile that we give or receive or take as a cue. Folks, it only takes a spark to get a rage of lust going which can, if not checked, if not checked, fascinate our thinking to the point and before we know it, we are fantasizing about the sexual act itself. Now, as I said before, this may sound too in your face for a preaching session on Sunday mornings, but the Lord knows our frame, right? He knows the deceitfulness of our fleshly hearts and these things need to be said, they need to be preached, they need to be spoken because they're from the word of God. That's why through Jeremiah the Lord said, the heart is what? It's deceitful than all else and is desperately sick. Who can understand it? So let's not deceive ourselves and think that this would never happen to us because it can. You know, the modern notion for direction on morality is Go with your heart. You heard that one? Just go with your heart. Folks, don't do that. Never do that. No matter what it is. It's a dangerous path. And it'll only lead you away from the, God, away from the Lord. I would suggest go with the word of God, for that is the pathway of life, right? Not the pathway of death. And I'll cite that verse again. We've already cited it from um, uh, where Jesus spoke. He says, you have heard that it was said, do not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks on a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Matthew 5, 27 to 32. And so just like murder begins with our thoughts, so does immorality. Remember King David? Here's an example. Remember King David? Here he was at home when he should have been out in the head of his army fighting a battle. But he thought he would take it easy and in his leisure he looked and there he saw a beautiful woman bathing on a rooftop. Did it stop there? No, he didn't turn away straight away. Adultery festered in his heart, which as we know soon led to the act, but didn't stop there either, which soon led to murder, which led to the death of a child. Oh, what misery and devastation and destruction. But the most tragic of all in this, in David's situation, it's recorded in 2 Samuel 11:27. And the thing that David did was evil in the sight of the Lord, in the sight of Yahweh. 
You see, giving our minds to sexually, sexual fantasy in God's eyes is giving our hearts, which, by the way, belong to him, right? Is giving our hearts to the sin, sexual sin of adultery. This is when the seed of adultery draws us away from our spouse and for you single folks or for our spouse-to-be. It is the first step away from fidelity. The writer of the Proverbs warns of enticing sexual sin and he says this in Proverbs chapter 6, verse 25-28. Listen to me. Do not desire, and particularly geared toward the male, because just in case you ladies didn't know, males are triggered in this area a lot quicker than you, you ladies are, right? And I'm sure you know that. The writer of the Proverbs says, Do not desire her beauty in your heart, nor let her capture you with her eyelids. Can a man take fire into his bosom and his clothes not be burned? Or can a man walk on hot coals and his feet not be scorched? The answer is no. You play a fire and you will get burned. You see, the physical act of adultery or that of fantasizing about adultery will always carry negative and destructive consequences. And God's disciplining hand, by the way, if not genuinely repented of, you shall not commit adultery. What I want to do now is draw your attention to the implied prescription in this marriage or in this commandment. This commandment honours the union of marriage. As we have seen, it's important focus on the positive implications and... Um, and not only the negative prohibitions of these commands, we, we need to look at that. For example, in, this com in the command not to murder, the positive implication is that we honor and value the life that God has stamped on every person, right? We also see that you shall not commit adultery has a positive implication, which is to cherish and honor marriage. Bit of a no-brainer, but that's what the positive implication is. Hebrews 13 and verse 8, just in case you just think I'm making this up, Hebrews 13 and verse 8 says, Marriage should be honoured by all, and the marriage bed kept pure, for God will judge the adulterer and all the sexually immoral. How more upfront and plain can you get than that? And so let's briefly note three things about marriage here as we look at this positive implication marriage is a great relationship amen i hope all the married couples could say that here this morning and you prospective people who are going to get married you can just dream about it and um yeah sanctified in a sanctified manner and it's a good thing it's a great relationship honestly my wife was just talking to me the other day and reminding us of our son, Carl. And even as a little tacker, you know, you ask boys what they want to do when they grow up, They're either a fireman or a policeman or whatever. And, and right through all his years, I just want to get married and have kids. <laughs> yeah, so that's our, that's our Carl. And you know what? God has blessed him with a wonderful marriage and with kids. You know, even unsaved couples can benefit from taking God's advice for this relationship to flourish. As you will know, and you will all know, many unsaved people who are married have 
relatively good marriages. There is no other relationship on earth that, that delivers the intimacy, the wholeness, the companionship that comes in marriage as God designed. Unsaved people will miss out big time because they're not built on the right foundation of trust and faith in Jesus Christ. And uh, when everything does fall apart, when the pressures come, they will respond in a wrong way, of course. But generally speaking, unsaved people can have a reasonable sort of marriage if they follow God's order. Last month, Velma and I had the joy of celebrating my sister and her husband's 50 years of marriage. How many years have you been married, uh, Kevin, Dawn? 59. 59. 60 this year. We've got to remember that one, right? 60 years married this year. And, um, and back at my sister's celebration, you know, what a joy it was to celebrate with them and to see the trust and the security and the intimacy that has taken place in their lives. It was, a, it was a wonderful witness to the commitment in marriage. And when we think about that, we think about any other relationship, whether it be father, son, mother, daughter, cousin, even business relationship, one other relationship enjoys the trust, the security, the intimacy, and in the will of God, the rewards of children, and further still, the joys of grandchildren, and the company of each other, the romance, the deepening friendship as the real years go by. There is nothing like marriage, folks. Only in a God-honoring marriage relationship can this kind of marriage be had. So please, never, ever, not in my ears either, otherwise you'll get a near chew, never make disparaging remarks, even if it's said in a joke about marriage. Like tagging it as a ball and chain kind of a commitment. Don't go there. This is God's design, and it's a great relationship. Marriage is designed by God to be a great blessing in life. It's also an enduring relationship. Jesus is pretty clear that divorce is something that believers are to stay away from, if at all possible. We're to stay clear of that, if at all possible. You know, marriage was meant and designed by God to be a lifelong commitment. We all know that. That's what it was designed for it to be. Now, we all know that what God intended is not always reached. Just like as an individual, I'm not a perfect person. I still transgress. I still sin. I still think wrong thoughts. I still say wrong things. I still say things to my wife that I shouldn't say. I'm not a perfect person. And our marriages are not perfect either. But there's a way back to God in our marriages, right? But that love and the intimacy with one another and with our trust in Jesus Christ will always bring us back to that right pathway. And so understanding that perfection is not always reached as God intended, this does not mean that we forget what God intended. It doesn't mean that we take the attitude, oh, well, yeah, okay, I've done this, so that's too bad now, and so off we'll go down the broad road, etc. etc. No, it doesn't, no, we're not to do that. It doesn't mean that we treat, like so many do today, our marriage like a contract. 
And even those words are used in lots of marriage documents these days, a contract. You know what happens to contracts? You can break them. Contracts are broken. Our marriages are what? What is our marriage? Our marriage is, you know what it is? Listen to this. It is a holy covenant before God. You got that? And there's a difference between a contract and a covenant. A holy covenant before God, which death alone annuls. So marriage is a great relationship. It's designed to endure. And also it's a relationship that requires work. This is where we all need to listen up for those who are married and, and for those who are about to be married or thinking of marriage. You see, when a person comes to faith in Christ, it's a brand new relationship. It's like getting married. Wow, there's this new relationship. Once I was out of sorts with God, but now I've been brought in to the, as a child of God. And, but the thing is, if that new relationship with Christ and God is not nurtured and worked at and, and disciplined put in our lives, it'll become drudgery and burdensome. Church will be boring and we want to go our own way, etc., etc. And we hear many woeful stories like that. Paul told the Philippian church in chapter 3, verse 12, Wherefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, listen to this, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Or as he tells Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 7, discipline yourself unto godliness. This is to believers. Don't get carried away. Oh, okay, God's done a work, so let go and let God. I can just do what I want. No, no, no. This takes work. It takes discipline. Things have to be put in place. And so God's design of marriage is also a relationship that needs your attention and your work. If not, the marriage will become dull and boring and burdensome. And if left to look after itself, you know what? The door is left open to adultery. Listen now, Solomon honors marriage with instructive warnings as he uses these metaphorical expressions. He warns against the laziness and its sinful alternatives in the marriage. This is what he says. Drink water from your own cistern, running water from your own well. Should your springs overflow in the streets, your streams of waters in the public squares? Let them be yours alone. Never be shared with strangers. May your fountain be blessed and may you rejoice in the wife of your youth. A loving doe, a graceful deer, may her breast satisfy you always. May you be captivated by her love. Why be captivated, my son, by an adulteress? Why embrace the bosom of another man's wife? For a man's ways are in full view of the Lord, and he examines all paths. Proverbs chapter 5, verse 15 to 21. Graphic, illustration, but true. In other words, what Solomon is saying here, put all your sexually driven energy, which, by the way, can be sinfully hijacked, Put all your sexually driven energy into your marriage and you will find a much more satisfying relationship than with any form of adultery. 
That's what he's saying here. You will find that marriage is a relationship that not only survives, but it thrives on being worked at. So what does this mean, men? Let me speak to the men here. It means you woo your wife. It probably means you buy her flowers. I heard recently husband had been married to his wife for X amount of years and never taken her out, never bought her flowers. Wow, I just can't imagine that. Take her out on dates, men. Help her in the home, men. Help her with the kids, men. Help her do the dishes, men. That's what it means. That's what something of what it means. That's just the very, very basics of what it means to work at your marriage. How true it is that often marriage relationships grow stale because our, our laziness takes over, our laziness at work and nurturing to keep afresh our God-designed love affair. It does happen. And allow you wives to go home and give your husbands a good shake-up on this if there's a bit lacking. My wife often has to do that to me. Let's value and honor marriage, okay? Or, you single folk, your marriage to be. You can honor your marriage to be. For a start, but looking in the right circles. Don't dare go out of God's demand by looking and even considering a spouse that is unsaved. If you're saved, don't even go there. That's a fundamental breakdown right at the beginning. It's value and honor marriage as God designed it to be. This brings us to the third area, area that I wish to bring to your attention. And um, this, it's, this commandment requires practical input to be obeyed. And we live in a day when the approach to life is generally go with the flow or do whatever makes you happy. A bit like what I said before, go with your heart. You know, Christians, we cannot do that, right? We cannot do that. We cannot do what our minds or our hearts suggest. Rather, our minds, you know what our minds need, even as Christians? Our minds need constant renewal, according to Romans chapter 12 and verse 2, which says, be not conformed to this world. In other words, that word conformed there, be not pressed, this is what it means, be not pressed into the mould of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. So, folks, we must guard our minds from being numbed with sexual sin. Because that's what our culture is really good at. I know that and you know that. It numbs us into the vagaries of sexual sin. So what? We need to be on guard. This guarding will involve many practical things. And let me name a few again for your consideration. It will mean that we put the brakes on mind-numbing sexual explicit movies. I hope you turn it off when they come on. It will mean that we refuse to watch pornography. It shouldn't even be on our radar or even thinking. It will mean that we vet any songs with sexually explicit lyrics, like I believe there are many out there. It will mean that we are being careful not to wear clothing that is sexually provocative particularly you ladies, because you know our tendencies as men. It will mean that our behaviour is not flirtatious. 
It will mean that we become quickly alert to compromising situations of being alone with a member of the opposite sex. That is not your spouse. How many men have fallen? And sad to say, how many pastors have fallen because they've put themselves in a compromising situation? The list could go on, but whatever it takes, we must guard our minds in order to have what? We want the mind of Christ, right? Even in this area, we want the mind of Christ. Philippians 2 verse 5. And above all, if we saturate our minds with God's truth, what does it tell us in Colossians? Set your mind, there it is, on things above, not on things of the earth. So if we saturate our minds with God's truth, what happens is the seductive lies of the world, they will not get a foothold. Or they have a hard job at getting a foothold. Jesus prayed. What did he pray in John 17 verse 7? Father, and this is a prayer that he prayed for you. For every saint. He said, Father, sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. In other words, set them apart. May they have their minds saturated with the truth of God so that their minds are guarded against the evils of our culture and world. In closing, I want to make clear that God in this command, what does he do? He prohibits sexual intimacy outside of marriage. At the same time, this commandment implies that the best relationship on earth is marriage as he designed it to be. Now, there may be some here with deep regret, look back on some sexual sin of the past. I don't take anything for granted. A sin that may be plaguing you with shame. Or or maybe there is someone who is still involved with sexual sin of some description. Well, my word to you is this. If you're still involved, stop right now and repent of that sin and come to Christ and plead for his mercy and forgiveness. And if that is done from the heart, the Lord will do that. And for those with maybe dodgy pasts that still may be plaguing them, and by the way, we've all got dodgy pasts in some degree, in some area, no? We're all sinners. I want you to be assured. Remember the Lord, he forgave the woman of Samaria, this promiscuous woman, I'll go and call my husband. No, you've got five husbands. In other words, five men that she had known. Very promiscuous lady at Samaria. But the Lord forgave her, right? Her sin was forgiven for time and eternity. What a wonderful saviour we have. And so you too this morning, if you have sin that's plaguing you, if you come to Christ, and if you have come to Christ... Your sin, understand, please, the word of God said, has been forgiven forever. It's been removed as far as the east is from the west. It's been buried in the deepest sea, never to be held against you. Go from this place being assured of your forgiveness. Be assured in God's promise in 1 John 1 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. May the Lord bless our marriages and the marriages to be with hearts that obey him in this area. Shall we pray?
Our Father in heaven, we give thanks this morning that your word is sufficient for life and godliness. There's not one aspect of life that, Lord, you do not address and give us instructions on how to conduct ourselves. We thank you that your word through your spirit can drive home truth that can convict us. And, Lord, may it, if need be, Bring about repentance, and may you forgive us this morning. And so, Father, it would be timely, and we do so this morning, for everyone who is married here. Lord, bless our marriages. May we value them and just not see them as a man and a woman being together and just like flatmates. May we see them as making a theological statement that displays something of the glorious unity and the shalom of the Godhead eternal. Help us to do that. Help us to raise our kids in a home and environment where nurture and peace and instruction is given to them. Help us not to be conformed to the ways of this world where we accept simple ways as norm. Teach us, Lord, we pray. Help us to be obedient to your command. Help us to live by your word. Take us to our homes in safety this day, we pray, and bless your word amongst us. In the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.